Hello, how are you? Glad you're with us. Thanks as always for tuning into Floor 9. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and today we're talking Outlook 2024. And for those of you perhaps unfamiliar with the IPG Labs Outlook, annually we round up the ideas that excite us for the next few years and synthesize an article analyzing new technologies, market forces, and shifts in consumer behavior that are changing the media landscape. Joining me today to chat about those ch-ch-ch-changes is Adam Simon and Chelsea Freitas. How are you both? Excited to exercise that foresight as we scrutinize what's shaping the rest of the 2020s? So excited. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Now, Adam, as the auteur or author of this piece, why don't you kick us off by explaining how you landed on this year's title, which is Downstream Effects? We've been talking about and been in the late stage towards the end of the pandemic. And I think it's taken a while for a lot of cultural trends to really congeal. And I think we're now starting to clearly see what a post-pandemic society looks like, the impacts that has had on our culture and our habits as consumers and in the media, in brands and marketing. And I think we're starting to very clearly see now what those downstream effects are going to be. I like to think about it as like what we're seeing right now that is starting to coalesce is what we're going to look back on as the culture of the 2020s when we look back to this period. The pandemic, even though it didn't start right at the top of 2020, obviously, it was pretty early on there. And I think that is a sort of dividing line. The pandemic was its own weird bubble of culture and behaviors that obviously will be much discussed and reported on in the history books. But we're now at a point where we can see what that 2020s culture might start to look like when we look back 10 years from now. That's interesting and exciting, and it's nice to have a return to the kinds of behaviors that we're used to forecasting instead of second-guessing what is happening immediately next month because of the pandemic. It's nice to start to see things coalesce into more coherent trends than we've had for the past couple of years. Definitely agree. And that culture of the 2020s that you alluded to, I think that this is the first time that we've seen the reshaping of daily life since the introduction of the smartphone, perhaps. Can you guys just give me an idea of some of those major forces that are ultimately impacting this from a consumer behavior perspective? What is driving the redefinition of culture? There's a bunch of things, the pandemic and the reaction to the pandemic. But I think it's not even just that. We're now starting to see the sort of normal things that would impact consumer trends. For one, escapism, we think is going to be big. This was obviously something we talked about early on in the pandemic. But we think this year, escapism in the next couple of years is going to be really big just because of increasing political upheaval around the world, as well as increasing anxiety around climate change. And we think that those things are going to continue to fuel consumer interest in escapism. And when we're talking about escapism, it's not just of the digital variety anymore, like IRL events are back as well. Yeah, I think we've already moved past the revenge travel and revenge events that we saw over the past couple of years. And we're moving more into a little bit more thoughtful escapism. And it's really responding to the increased anxiety that is permeating everything. And part of that is definitely coming out of the pandemic and then sort of a hangover from the pandemic. But also, like I said, there's obviously newer, more current forces that are shaping that as well. Mm. Chelsea, what are some of the major forces that you're looking at that are ultimately influencing this trend? There's always going to be these driving forces, right? And as Adam was setting up at the top, so many things we were trying to keep a pulse on over the last few years with the pandemic. And I think escapism is a big one to call out. It's been an ongoing theme, but now we're going to see it in less of that intense and urgent way, the way that people were regaining their control and taking these revenge trips and really jumping on travel the second it came back. Escapism will continue to be very present, but it'll be more purposeful and more mindful. 
looking specifically at the U.S. as well as around the world, there are going to be pivotal elections, there's ongoing climate anxiety. So people will be continuing to seek out escapism, but they're going to do it with a little more purpose to get away from these ever-present concerns. And it's going to be an existential break from the things that we're having to deal with in day-to-day life. And part of that pessimism, I'm sure, is this anxiety that we're experiencing over the economy, especially with the ZERP phenomena going away. Adam, that was a term that was actually new to me. Can you give me a little bit more context on what ZIRP means to you? Yeah, I love it. It's so fun to say. ZERP ZERP refers to the zero interest rate phenomenon that we were in many parts of the world for a good long time leading up to and through the pandemic. Basically, interest rates were super low, both for consumers and for businesses. Borrowing money was, if not free, very cheap. And this led to all kinds of interesting phenomenon because it sort of stuck with us for over a decade is now starting to get pulled back. And I think the easy, obvious thing that most people will be most familiar with is mortgage rates being much higher than they've been in over a decade, which is having a chilling effect on the housing market here in the US as well as in other parts of the world. But it's not just that. That's the easy consumer thing that you think about when you think about interest rates. But it's also like lots of businesses fund a lot of activities when when money is cheap that way that they then have to pull back on when interest rates go up. This is partially contributing to the current squeeze that we see happening in Hollywood and the streaming services cutting back their production budgets and the amount of originals that they're going to fund. We're going to see big tech companies, a lot of the layoffs that are coming from big tech happened because they overextended their hiring during the pandemic, leveraging a lot of that free money. Like 6,000 layoffs in the gaming industry in the last three months or whatever it is. Exactly. And now that the interest rates have gotten high again, they can't afford to keep overfunding in terms of hiring just to make sure that they're keeping talent away from the competition, for example. And I think this is also starting to play out along with some regulatory changes and shifts in how Silicon Valley is seeing more conservative investments in startups as well, because the VCs are not able to borrow as much money either, and other and angel investors. And because of the changing regulatory environment, some of the exit opportunities are less clear than they used to be. Those are just a few examples. You could also blame it on inflation and consumer products companies raising prices, outpacing inflation. That is also part of it. Retailers starting to crack down on free and easy returns. That's also part of this whole phenomenon. It's that belt tightening across the economy, I think, is basically what you see when ZERP comes to an end. This is a pattern that happens over and over again. We will get down to lower interest rates at some point again in the future, but it might take a while. Right. I think this was the only fourth period in history where the interest rate was actually at zero, if I'm correct. Yeah, I believe that's right. <laughs> yeah. Love pulling up all stats in the dirt. But one thing that you did say that really resonate with me was the lesson investment in Silicon Valley in my partnerships position. That's something that I've seen become very true. Series A rounds are definitely not in the hundreds of millions anymore. We're starting to see much more scaled back investment across the board in terms of making those big bets for the future. One thing that I am sure has been on the tips of everyone's tongue from Silicon Valley to everywhere across the world is artificial intelligence, which I know is going to be one of these downstream effects that we're talking about in 2024. We've seen it kind of infiltrate into the professional sector. It's also making its way in the creative realm. I'm just curious to know from your guys' perspective, where do you see this having the biggest impact on the defining of the culture in the 2020s? 
Yeah, I think we're still seeing a lot of hype around AI right now, but I think that 2024 is going to be the year that the hype has to turn into results. I think it's going to be a deployment year for AI. Just announcing that you're using AI, everybody has already seen past that trick, right? Are we teetering on the trough of disillusionment or? I think that the trough of disillusionment might not hit until next year. I think that this year is going to be a lot of shipping AI-empowered products. And I think that the consumers will start using something that is powered by uh, large language models and the new crop of generative AI. Most consumers by the end of the year will probably be using something on a regular basis, on probably a daily basis that is powered by those technologies. My big question then, and then this is where the trough of disillusionment looms, is will we even still talk about it as AI as a separate thing? Or will it just be these new updated features in the software and services I'm already using? I kind of suspect that what will happen is we'll see a lot of deployment this year. Some of it will be useful, not all of it, obviously. And then next year, we might move on past AI because it might be so normalized into so many of our products. And the other thing you have to keep in mind is we're not about to see a phenomenal leap in capabilities in the way that we did over the past couple of years. So we're definitely going to hit a wall with both the technology as well as things like licensing and regulation. It was possible to train an LLM on all of the data of the internet a couple of years ago, and that seems like it might not be possible in the near future. So I think that there will still be obviously incremental improvements, but we might hit a point where AI features get so normalized in the software that we use that we, again, stop talking about AI as a new driving force, probably next year, like I said. I think the AI that I'm most looking forward to is the one that was announced during the Super Bowl vibe Verizon, the Beyonce AI. <laughs> Just echoing that perfect example of it becoming so mainstream, there was a Microsoft co-pilot spot mm. during uh, the big game. Yep. It's still ever present, but we're still here talking about it specifically as the category of AI. And I think next year we'll see that begin to change. NFL, please don't sue us for saying Super Bowl. Superb owl. We just said superb owl. Yeah. Back to birds. <laughs> it's my Staten Island accent. <laughs> so as we're talking about the big game, and obviously one of the big darlings of the last few years from both a media and investment perspective has been sports betting. But I think some of these traditional vices we're starting to see shifts away from a consumer behavior perspective. A borrowed term that we use in our outlook is the rising Ozempic economy, which obviously refers to the very popular weight loss drug. But what does this mean beyond the specific pharma implications here? One of the things that we've been watching very closely and that I think is really fascinating is the downstream effects of a significant number of people starting to be on these new modern weight loss drugs. And we're using Ozempic as sort of a catch-all phrase. So good work there, Novo Nordisk, claiming the generic term for the category. The more research we see on these drugs, the more obvious it is that they're not only reducing cravings for food, which we're already seeing show up in quarterly reports from companies like Walmart, who were reporting that their snack food sales are down and the revenue is remaining flat because of increased prices, but the actual unit sales are down. It's not only that, it's also has all of these other effects on cravings. We basically accidentally stumbled into a class of drugs that can curb any kind of compulsive behavior. We're also seeing very clear results for alcohol consumption. People who are on Ozempic and similar drugs are drinking far less. But the real interesting thing is there are some very early studies indicating that it curves even sort of non-consumptive compulsive behaviors, things like gambling addiction. And they're starting to investigate it also for things like social media addiction and overuse of smartphones. 
obviously TBD on how much that plays out. TBD, how many people would actually ever be prescribed a prescription medication to treat those kinds of things. The downstream effects of this could be huge. As of right now, there are only about 1.7% of the American population is on one of these weight loss drugs, which is a little crazy if you think about how much more we see them discussed in the media. Obviously, America does have a little bit of an obesity problem. So even if we take the other uses off the table, just the number of people who are eligible to be prescribed it by a doctor for weight control, it's in the 20 to 30% of the population range. Like I said, Walmart's already seeing it hit their bottom line. If we can imagine 20 times as many people in the US on these drugs, what other industries might be affected by that? Obviously, alcoholic beverages, possibly the burgeoning cannabis market. There are entire industries, sports betting, like you said, could be impacted by this as sort of a side effect. Not very many people are probably going to be prescribed it to handle that kind of compulsive behavior, but it might be a side effect. Same thing with mobile gaming. 80% of the profits of a lot of mobile games come from whales who overspend in the game, and that could disappear pretty quickly. It's just a fascinating thing to be thinking about. <laughs> mm -hmm. I love the idea of a magic pill that'll help me from devouring an entire bag of Takis in one sitting. But something that you said that really resonated with me is how it could curb compulsive behaviors like social media. New York was actually one of the first states to designate social media as an environmental toxin. So instead of going to like a hypnotist to get rid of your smoking problem or potentially your TikTok addiction, I think it's really interesting to think that maybe a pharma company can ultimately solve those problems and see how it can have an effect on the of the culture and not just that Gen Z mindset that we're all chalking things up to. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think that the studies on social media addiction are kind of all over the place, honestly. It almost doesn't matter what the cause is or how harmful it is. Again, it might just be a side effect of people trying to be healthy in other ways, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, so I, I think we just spent a good amount of time discussing the rhythms that will come to define the culture of the 2020s and that exposition, let's call it. But I want to double click into what the outlook's first trend is, and that's life's new B. As the tempo and timing of our lives evolve, so too must the choreography, of course. Though some in society are still clinging to that proverbial bar to practice their perfect plies and confiant chassés of yesteryear, many have moved on to two-stepping and breakdancing, brush-stepping, and actually crumping, too, to adopt to the change in composition. So said without a complex, drawn-out dance metaphor, the societal <laughs> habits, patterns, and cycles that have been in place for decades have been disrupted, dramatically altering approaches and expectations. So let's investigate what this means from a professional perspective first, since that's the ties that bind us here on Floor 9. I want to know, has the death knell been dealt to the eight-hour workday and the traditional nine-to-five? I think it's a little TBD, right? I think this varies sector by sector, industry by industry, company by company. But I think that this is a downstream effect of a lot of knowledge workers to work from home for an extended period of time. It made it really clear to people that that was possible and that the business would not fall apart if that happened. There were ways to make it work. We see this push and pull between employees and employers and commercial real estate investors around office usage. But I think that it made very clear that the traditional nine to five, you go into an office, that's when you do your work. And then you go home and, you know, the smartphone upended this a little bit and that we were able to respond to emails and messages and even do more serious work from anywhere. 
It's that combined with our pandemic time. The regular structure of the workday is out the window. We already see a lot of consumers having that evening peak of productivity that popped up during the pandemic around like 8 to 9 p.m. after dinner. You go back and finish anything that you didn't get to or just catch up on your email or something like that. That is sticking around even as people are going into the office more frequently. And when you say going into the office, do you mean like staying there? Or what about this term coffee badging that has mystically arose? Yeah, there's also this idea of coffee badging, another term that we are lifting from one of the many journalistic sources that we consume, which is the idea of if your employer is requiring you to come in a certain number of days, maybe they have started tracking the number of times you swipe in on your security badge. Some people going into the office just to get coffee, chat with their coworkers for an hour or so, and then go home again. You'd have to be pretty draconian to actually enforce people being in an office eight hours a day at this point. The the very low unemployment rates, at least here in the US, are also contributing to that of like most employers are savvy enough to realize that if they try to crack down too hard, they're just going to start losing valuable top talent. There is a little bit of push and pull there. And increasingly, there's also the influence of digital nomads and the ability to be able to work from a different location for a period of time. Shout out anywhere economy. Exactly. All of these things are kind of contributing to there just being a lot more flexibility and also unpredictability. And when we think about the media implications, for a long time, obviously, prime time has been out the window, but so is commute time. Commute time could be happening at any time of the day, right? So basically, our media habits are very fractured in terms of what and when we are consuming that content at this point. And I think we need to move away from any kind of assumption about any individual because it's incredibly hard at this point to predict. And it might settle down again at some point into more regular patterns, but for the foreseeable future, it's going to be pretty unpredictable. Yeah, and the way that we would traditionally classify these periods of time, like drive time and prime time, really no longer hold true because as you said, everyone is driving, commuting at different stages of the day. People have those peaks of productivity in their workday during when some of the traditional programming is airing across those big four networks. So I think we're really seeing a dynamic shift in ways that audiences can be targeted and approached throughout the day. One thing that really resonated with me from a brand example is the Champions League has this commercial that they run in the United States that talks about how we celebrate distinctly here because it's often on Tuesdays and Wednesdays in the middle of the day from like 2.30 to 4 o'clock, you see millions of people blocking out their calendars, not me, of course, during those times in order to watch the games. So I think it's really interesting to see these shifts in consumer behavior kind of change our attitude as advertisers. So I think it's fair to say that our changing expectations around work are driving our daily and weekly habits to seismically shift. But what about attitudes towards some of life's largest milestones, like home ownership and child rearing? Chelsea, how about your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, this has been bubbling up and changing for years. We're all living the city life. So I think we're ahead of the curve here, at least speaking for myself as the female on the podcast. Life used to look a specific way, and that was the specific expectation, and that's what success looked like. And I think that's been challenged, and that's been changed. A lot of it is due to the accessibility of being able to see people challenge those milestones and see people live life and find success in other ways. People are no longer defined specifically by their relationships or defined by that specific identity of their work behavior or their job. So I think we're seeing people be able to fully exercise the different elements of their life. But then there are those other key headwinds that we talked about at the top of this like millennials straight up can't afford a house or there's no inventory for the types of houses that need to fit our new lifestyles 
So I think we're really hitting a sticking point. And in those houses and those communities that do exist, we're hitting an era where I can't remember the exact stat off the top of my head, but a large portion of the home infrastructure in the United States needs to be rebuilt in the coming years. So we really are hitting a sticking point. On the one end, we have those psychographical elements that are influencing us. And let me go as far as to say empowering us to live a life and redefine what that looks like. But then on the other hand, we have these key factors. And I'm looking specifically at the housing market because that's what's top of mind over here in my neck of the woods. But I think it's more than that, right? It's like there's challenges of health and fertility. There's challenges of a lot of people did face those layoffs. And what does it look like coming out of that? So I think it can be chalked up in a couple different ways when we look at the purpose and the factors behind these new beats. And you talk about this redefinition of expectations just kind to fit modern lifestyle. Would you say that's a response to last year's vibe session that people are trying to embrace the entropy, if you will? Yeah, I mean, social in many ways has become like, you know, that's our modern water cooler. And I feel like the vibes, it's really easy to catch that pessimistic vibe sometimes. Even though we were amidst a vibe session, how does that economic pessimism tally with the rampant consumer spending we're seeing, especially across luxury categories. That doesn't make sense to me. I can't buy a house. So, you know, YOLO, if you will, let me just go buy this $5,000 purse or something like that. Yes, this is a phenomena to me, right? There's a whole new attitude about spending and there's new behaviors that are being driven specifically by Gen Z. In the luxury category alone, they're making their first purchases as early as age 13 or 15, something like that. That's two to five years sooner than their millennial counterparts. And that is due in large part because of the accessibility and their ability to fully participate and consume content in the luxury category long before they're actually at the pivotal point of purchase. Maybe it's time to start throwing in some housing content as soon as age 12 to these kiddos. But realistically, I think that is part of that YOLO mentality and mindset. It can feel looming and daunting being able to ever actually make those big milestone purchases. Maybe instead of the very traditional or previous milestone of buying that house, it's something that's like a little more of an adrenaline or dopamine hit, like a new handbag at your promotion. That Chanel or that Loewe or that Prada is in fact much cheaper than the down payment on the house. Yeah. So we're all tip tapping to life's new beat, like Patrick Savion over here. But I'm curious, like, how do we ultimately break through to audiences tactfully in this new era of media consumption? How do we ultimately change the way that we approach audience in this new culture of the 2020s? Like, can AI help us be more selective or tactful in our approach when inserting brand messages? Do we still need that human component? What is ultimately going to allow us as as marketers to thrive in this new environment, trying to reach people at all different kinds of hours in all different kinds of environments? I mean, that's a hot question. I'll go first and then Adam can chime in. Like, I think AI is going to be important and data is going to be super important to drill down into our audiences. But as brands, we have to remember we can't be everything to everyone, nor should we try to be. It's really important to hone in on who you are as a brand, what is your purpose, and then understand that audience, right? Like I'm joking over here talking about reaching the Gen Z or the younger consumer. 
understand their mindset, of course, to grow with them, but drill into who your audience actually is. Who are they now? And then who are those rising consumers and understand their passions, their behaviors, and figure out how to reach them in a way that's important to them. That could be as simple as social listening to understand their cultural and their key trends and how to resonate meaningfully with them in those new beats and milestones. But I think AI can also have a key role in helping understand and serve up, you know, right place, right time, right message in that context. Yeah, I think this is where we're going to see the most impactful use of AI and marketing in the coming year or two is to improve our targeting and make it even more real time and based on uh, an increased number of, of data driven cues so that we're really customizing the targeting and also the message to find the right consumers at the right time. There's an interesting stat, 29% of consumers are open to brands tracking their emotions to deliver uh, personalized experiences. Now, this is something that is very rare at this point, and we already have 29% of consumers who are open to this idea. So I do think, I do think that, um, you know, consumers, there, there can almost, sometimes there can be nothing more annoying than seeing a communication, whether it's from a brand or from a friend or family member that hits you when you are not in the emotional state to receive it. If you are having a bad day and somebody's sending you, you know, silly, cheery messages, that can be definitely worse than not hearing from them at all. And I think the same thing can be true for brands. So I think that increasingly our, our targeting is going to have to get more sophisticated and AI will be an important component to help us understand and align with those consumer moods. For sure. When Daniel Powder is the soundtrack of your life or the mood ring is red on your finger, I think that's uh, not the right time to necessarily tell me to, you know, dive into this brand experience. So I think those will be great trackers for the future when we evolve our approach as marketers. But as the personal rhythms of life's new beat are changing, they're starting to reshape the world around us too, with public and semi-public spaces evolving to match our new habits and patterns, which will bring me on to our next trend, the remix city. I think I'd imagine that most listeners' imagination are going to immediately jump to the integration of advanced infrastructure technology into our streets to make them as smart as our home. But what are some of the other components that are going to come to define the remix city? To your point, Ryan, I think a lot of this and, and the part that we're interested in specifically right now is flowing out of that uh, life's new beat trend, really rethinking sort of urban planning and the, the this idea of the 15-minute city, this desire we're seeing from across the board from consumers to have more walkable mixed-use environments. I think that this is giving brands permission to open retail presences in locations that maybe otherwise they would not have been welcome in. Obviously, this requires some adjustment at the city level, the urban <laughs> planning level, to undo some of the zoning that has, has happened over the past 50 years. But we're increasingly seeing consumers who really want those sort of mixed-use developments. You know, so many consumers already live in cities that we, we talk a lot about, like, the suburbs and the exurbs and, and all of that. But percentage-wise, so many consumers already live in cities, that even consumers who don't live in cities are now looking for that sort of more dense mixed use environment. And I think that opens things up certainly for, for more permanent retail presences, but also things like pop-ups and experiential activations and things like that in places that you might not normally have expected them. I just want to know a little bit more about this 15-minute city concept. Is it just the mere fact that you can kind of like walk to everything you would need to survive? Are there any real-life examples of such? How do you put your finger on look and like, ah, that's a 15-minute city right there? 
The 15 minute city is sort of a, a trend that's been very popular on social media over the past, I would say, year. But it's really about, yeah, making mixed use walkable spaces so that the idea being that you can walk from your home to where you work to all of the um, retail and services that you need to be within about a 15 minute walk of either your home or your or your work and that those two things should also be relatively walkable obviously a lot of more modern cities are not zoned this way and that is kind of a problem and certainly the suburbs are not zoned this way and that is kind of the problem and kind of the thing we're seeing uh, pushback against it's like uh you know we're starting to actually see the most innovation happen in smaller cities, which do tend to be more progressive in the sense that they have less bureaucracy. And they also have a need to attract digital nomads and people who are working remotely, even some of the time, because they are more affordable, the smaller cities do tend to do well with those folks. One awesome example we're seeing is in Cleveland, Ohio, which recently reimagined one of their downtown public squares to turn it into what they're calling an urban living room. So just creating lots more services at this transit hub that a lot of folks are passing through anyway, that uh, obviously makes makes it an, an easy, obvious place to to upgrade and experiment there. For sure. I would say Cleveland rocks. Once again, Drew Carey, we thank you. But Chelsea, are you in favor of urban living rooms and adult playgrounds? Are, are you into this lifestyle? I mean, they are calling this era the suburban revival, right? We saw so many people shift and move during the pandemic. And now that that behavior is settled and the dust is settled, it's like we need to serve people in all of these communities. I mean, I'm a city girl myself. I prefer to walk. I'm currently figuring out how to relearn how to drive a vehicle. So I'm definitely in favor of all things walkable. But I think we can see this as literally a dotted line from that first trend, right? It's like people are spending more time at home in their environments and they're looking for like that third space. They're craving like, what does my new day look like? And where can I spend some of that time? And can I interject, like in terms of those third spaces, would you say like retail locations are actually emerging as those third spaces too? I think usually we think of like leisure places like parks, playgrounds and the like, but do you think a retail environment could be one such place that these people are going to escape? For sure. We're seeing really like the that retail era of experience and uh, retailtainment having a moment yet again. This was definitely popular pre-pandemic era. And then, of course, everyone shifted to shopping online. But we are in that resurgence of retailtainment and people wanting to go back in store. Are they going in store to purchase? Probably not. It's different category to category. But I do think that physical space is key. People want to go in. They want to interact. Warby had an example or a quote in, in an article I read recently. And basically, they use data on their sales and data on, you know, their target audience to go into new cities. And they found out that when they open a shop in one of those new cities, their online sales actually triple in that location. Don't quote me exactly, but I'm seeing some head nods, so I think I got it right. Which is fascinating, right? Like, people see that physical structure they're able to go in and try on, and so it's really creating a new presence and affirming that brand in a new space in a new city. So I think we're seeing, you know, changes in both, you know, familiar retail categories, but also that D2C playbook looks new as well. It's important to note that also retailers especially the more innovative retailers, are really moving towards mixed use within the retail footprint itself. Warby Parker, obviously, also has optometrists on, on site, right? But we're also seeing the addition of things like beauty bars and other, and obviously things like online order, pickup, and return. Retail stores are becoming 
multi-use in and of themselves. It's not just a place to go pick something off a rack and check out and take it home. There's other services being bundled into those stores also, which I think is key and kind of important to this particular trend as well. Shout out lifecycle loyalty, one of last year's trends, which I think is so important, right, to get people in store to interact. As Adam said, the beauty bar, we also see it from an upcycling and sustainability perspective. A lot of stores are opening a station inside to help repair or upcycle clothing. I think that's another key one to keep in mind. And then from a tech perspective, right, like that there's new shopability integrated in store. So maybe it's a logistics play, like actually less inventory in store, or maybe it's an AR play to be able to swipe through different things and try on multiple things without actually trying them on. And then there's, you know, Amazon's always experimenting with different Amazon Go models as well. One thing that I think is super interesting when we're talking about these like mixed retail environments, like if a bank could become a coffee shop, why can't my shoe store also be a bar one day? I think those are really interesting ways that stores are kind of pivoting their model to fulfill multiple purposes. But within this, you know, new remix city, I'm interested to hear from you guys. How does mobility play into this conversation? Is it the introduction of, you know, smaller form factors that are more, you know, eco-friendly within city environments? Is it autonomous? Autonomous vehicles making their way out to the burbs after, you know, developing highway capabilities. What do you guys see as the most pivotal mobility trends that are shaping the remix city? Yeah, I think it's important to think about mobility holistically because we're at this sort of tipping point where a lot of city planners are thinking about how to better optimize their urban spaces and, and suburban planners as well, not just big cities. Mobility is also top of mind for them. And I think that there's three things really that I can think of that are either or they're all already happening, but they're about to, over the next decade, become hu huge, huge. And obviously, as a city planner, you need to be thinking at least a decade out. At least I hope you are. One is drone delivery for logistics. This is probably going to be more impactful in suburbs and exurbs and rural areas, um, but it will help speed up logistics for e-commerce deliveries for people in places that have less access to these warehouses and to these fulfillment centers. But obviously, drones also need places to land and places to take off. And there's all kinds of other infrastructure that sort of have to go to, uh, to support them as well. Then there's autonomous vehicles themselves in the way that we traditionally think about them. Obviously, um, we're seeing some really interesting advances, even though GM's cruise division is now sort of on pause. Google's Waymo division is running ahead very quickly. <laughs> Hot Streak, they just announced that they're rolling out in low speeds on highways in California and also on surface streets in Los Angeles. We're definitely seeing some consumer pushback and concern around this, as you might have seen in the news uh, over the past couple of days. But it is one of those things that, um, you know, is we'll see sort of how consumers receive them. But for passenger vehicles, obviously, that starts to impact things like traffic flow, things like do you need as much parking downtown if more people are using vehicles, driverless vehicles to commute because the costs start to come down. Lots of open questions there. We also can see retailers using them. This whole idea of rooms on wheels, the idea that you could have an AV roll up with you know a cafe or a dressing room and a bunch of wardrobe samples to try on or for uh, healthcare services, all kinds of things like that. We're expecting, we're a few years away from 
that really becoming a reality, but it will come sooner rather than later. And then the last one, and the big one that seems like a crazy futuristic thing, but that is actually almost here, is flying taxis. <laughs> Electronic vertical takeoff and landing devices, another acronym for you, EVTOL. They don't look like cars, but they're basically flying taxis uh, that are going to start hitting the skies of New York City uh, as early as 2025 uh, in a partnership um, between Joby, a startup, uh, and Delta Airlines. So in the beginning, they're mostly going to be used for getting you from let's say downtown Manhattan into to the airport quickly. But I think that once the infrastructure starts to appear and people start to get used to these, uh, these vehicles, we're going to see a lot more use cases for them as well. So um, lots of changes that are sort of again, there, it's already here today, but it over the next five or 10 years will start to become increasingly popular and visible. And that's also going to impact how our cities evolve and where these retail stores and services and out-of-home advertising opportunities exist. Yeah, right now it only costs 180 bucks to take a blade from the downtown heliport to Newark Airport. I can't imagine how low the prices are going to go once EV tolls become, or EV tolls, become the more norm in our society in New York. Another thing that really interested me in what you were saying about these autonomous vehicles is the ability to kind of make them anything on wheels, whether it be a store or a health clinic or potentially a moving entertainment center. I think we've seen really interesting campfire seating form factors inside of vehicles that kind of enable for more immersive experiences on wheels. I think it's definitely still um, a, a part of the industry that is still coalescing. Uh, but I think the the sort of leader in the space right now anyway is um, Sony's Afila vehicle, um, which is a an EV that Sony is producing in partnership with Honda uh, that is uh, full of, uh, you know, Sony tech and media in it, um, including PlayStation. So, you know, I, I, this vehicle is still a couple of years from shipping. It's still evolving in terms of the concepts shown off at CES every year. Um, I don't think we've seen the final version of the vehicle yet. It indicates that, you know, at least at Sony, they think that this is going to be a big enough shift that means that they, as a consumer electronics and media company, should be involved in the vehicle in a in a very hands-on way rather than just licensing to somebody else. Once you don't have to drive, uh, you know, it changes our media consumption behaviors inside the vehicle, whether that is, you know, part of your commute or replacing, you know, sort of longer drives. Um, I think we have yet to see exactly how this is going to play out. There's always the possibility that the smartphone wins as it does in so many other places and that we're just watching or playing on our smartphones or, or laptops or other portable devices. It's a big open question mark as we see more and more autonomy in, in vehicles become a reality. I would also add that the introduction of AI into some of these onboard infotainment systems has definitely moved the needle in the direction of kind of using the car as that immersive entertainment space away from the smartphone. I think one of the darlings from CES this year was Amazon's Alexa integration with BMW, in which you could, you know, not only ask it why that check engine light has come on, but also to play whatever kind of media or continue the podcast you are listening to while you were in your home. So definitely some interesting to development to watch in the in-cabin space. Now, our last two trends talked about the nuance of our own experiences and social and physical responses to these evolutions. And now in this era of hyper-personalization, we've been dancing to the beat of our drums for so long that I think we've come to yearn for unifying cultural events. 
we at the lab talk a lot about connected communities, you know, niche, sparsely populated subgroups across the interweb centered around singular passions. But I think we're starting to see some people emerge from these echo chambers, which brings me to the revenge of the monoculture, our next trend. Now, Adam and Chelsea, as people distinctly cooler than I am, do either of you have a good example of how or one of these unifying cultural events? I think I'm still living in that echo chamber. It's easy to point to the pandemic and say we were also isolated and only socializing online, and that's really driving this desire for monoculture. But Ryan, to your point, I think it's equally, if not more so, about the nichification of our media environments and the fact that our social feeds are so personalized and, and different from each other's, and uh, that has started to drive increasingly niche media consumption in everything from music to TV to movies. And that's why we see such interesting excitement around uh, things like Barbenheimer. And I think that, uh, you know, Barbie and Oppenheimer, okay, let's be honest, Barbie really drove this, this behavior and Oppenheimer kind of drafted in on top of the cultural phenomenon that was Barbie this past summer. But I think that a lot of that was, a you know, about establishing this as a cultural moment that everybody was participating in. It, it, they successfully established Barbie as a reckoning for the summer that if you were not there on opening weekend, you were missing out on the thing that everybody was talking about. And then Oppenheimer again, sort of sort of the add on if you want to be a completionist. <laughs> I would love to hear Christopher Nolan's take on Barbie, actually. Nobody, I, as far as I know, nobody asked him on the record what he thought about Barbenheimer. It was a, you know, obviously a really smart, well done brand strategy to promote Barbie, but I think it also tapped into at the uh, the exact right moment this desire for everybody to like a have fun, but but have fun with uh, something that uh, everybody was sort of participating in at the same time. Um, we see this, you know, uh, award show numbers are up, live sports numbers are up. People are looking for those moments of connection where they can feel like part of something with everybody else, uh, or not everybody, but you know, a lot of other people. And obviously, none of these things is reaching literally everybody, but it, it, they are very big mainstream monoculture drivers, like we used to have literally every night during primetime. And now that that has gone away, people are f are looking for that elsewhere. Yeah, TiVo was the initial demise of the primetime culture. And now here we are all tuning in at different hours of the day. But while Barbenheimer was definitely one of the big double feature this summer, can we just put some spec on Saw Patrol before we like move on to Chelsea's example? Saw Patrol coming this Thanksgiving moaned uh, when Moana 2 and Wicked both come out on the same day. <laughs> it's Barbenheimer for people with a BFA in musical theater. I mean, I don't know how I follow that, but Ryan, as you were talking about TiVo, like if that was one of the first elements of fragmentation, like, I mean, could we say TikTok is the next? I mean, I'm going to go out on a stretch here, but it's like, we're in this, uh, the era of these stories, right? I can't even say storification. That's giving it too much credit. But we've seen so many changes in social over, you know, the last couple of years where it really is a negative place. And we talked about escapism at the top of this conversation. Something that Adam said, he just said fun. Like, I think people are craving going deep in things that bring them joy. And like, that's a huge element of this. Like to just zoom out for a second and be like, Yes, era's tour. Yes, like outfits, bracelet, consuming the content around it. And if you couldn't shell out for the live show, then watching the movie. Like, I think there's a lot of different ways to participate, but still feeling like you're part of that big monoculture moment in time. And so 
that was fun to see the diversification of these events come to life and see how people were able to participate on their own terms, but still going deep in something, not just like consuming a little clip or a little story, but actually like participating in a way that felt true to them and doing it with, with just sheer joy. Even consuming that Everest tour at home isn't exactly the same as being in stadium. We always talk about time shifted togetherness as a way of being bringing people together. And I think that this revenge of the monoculture is a direct response to the loneliness epidemic that we talk about. 24% of people over 15 years old actually say that they are lonely. So I think that these unifying cultural events are kind of bringing us back to that kitchen table, if you will, to uh, kind of intermingle with one another, whether it be in virtual or real life environments. As we're talking about the revenge of the monoculture something that i do want to call out is this concept of zero marginal creation now zero marginal distribution i'm familiar with that from the early days of the internet but can you enlighten our listeners as to how this has been ratcheted up a notch in uh 2024 yeah it's definitely uh this is another downstream effect of generative ai that is uh it's starting to appear but this is definitely going to be a media hot topic for the next five years is just how prolific ai is in generating media um and uh this is going to very quickly start to fill our social feeds especially in on uh, platforms like tiktok that are already sort of selecting from the best content across the network to show you at any given moment they're increasingly going to start just creating content for us which is just going to amplify this nichification because it's very possible that we will at some point in the next few years have a social feed that is entirely customized to us just to keep us entertained um, and uh, individually and I think that that obviously is good for the platform's engagement but bad for our collective culture right it's like if a TikTok only happens in your feed does it make a sound <laughs> exactly, exactly. And obviously, there'll be some sharing of the the stuff that you think is the best. Uh, and you, uh, if you're really excited about something, you're still going to want to share it with your friends. But um, it's going to just amplify the this nichification of media even more than it already is. So is this like tension between monoculture and AI? Like, wh how is that defining our media consumption, you know, in the 2020s and onwards? Uh, is monoculture the salvation from all this synthetic media that is ultimately going to consume our feeds in the near future? I mean, I think so. Or the the social platforms will create um, IRL connections or drive to that like live or in-person um, connection. I think, you know, human question mark, is it human or AI? We do not know. <laughs> we can talk about like the companionship that AI brings and if that will, you know, take place in a social setting or social environment. TBD, you know, I think, I do think this next era, you know, we hit on zero marginal creation. I think participation from a social perspective is key. And that is a key element of monoculture too, right? Like, AI is making it easier than ever for people to experiment and create. And I think that response to bigger monoculture moments is is exciting. And, you know, we can debate all day about high value versus low value and like what that output is actually going to look like. I, I don't know. But I do think we'll see the next era of people be more, you know, excited and willing to experiment in social spaces. <laughs> yeah, I want to see Ryan's hot take on uh, Vanderpump. Yeah, don't judge me because I'm a Bravo head. 
So we've kind of danced around the fourth trend in our discussion of the third one, which is the expanding experience economy. We talked about, you know, Taylor Swift and Beyonce making their tours available digitally in some capacity. Um, I think that's a really interesting concept because the experience economy exceeded $110 billion globally in 2023, $50 billion of that being sent in the U.S. But as prices continue to soar, to enjoy some of these big monoculture moments live and in person, there has been more interesting developments lower down the stack. Um, I'm curious to know how is this manifesting itself in the home and then beyond that as well. But let's start with like AKTVs and all that fun stuff. The interesting thing that's happening here is when we talk about the experience economy, we tend to think of those those out of home activities, particularly concerts, live shows. I think you could include obviously things like theme parks and museums in there. Also, I think live theater, live music, live opera, all of all of those those fine arts as well. That part of the experience economy has been increasingly moving up market in <laughs> across the board, down to and including movies, which I think are kind of on the cusp there. At the same time, at home, we are about to see sort of the first big shift in our home viewing and consumption experience that we've seen in a long time. And that is with increased projected increased adoption of things like uh, like headsets. Um, so Apple just shipped their Vision Pro headset, um, which is a very high end device. Uh, it is going to be a high end, more niche consumer device for the foreseeable future. Um, but one of the and, and there are a lot of open questions about spatial computing and what what these devices will play, what role these devices will play uh, in the future as they become uh, more accessible to more mainstream consumers. Um, obviously, we know he VR headsets have been around for a long time, primarily used as gaming devices. Um, Meta has been trying to break out of that. Apple seems to have created a, a more general purpose computing device. We'll have to wait and see how that is received by consumers. But in the short term, one place that we know that it is phenomenally successful is in the entertainment space. Um, and it's also the place that if you wanted to buy a high-end television, it's also in the same price range as that. So obviously not something you're going to buy to watch the big game with your friends because it is a solitary experience. But for a solitary viewing experience, it is better than the 4K TVs that everybody has in their living room. Um, and I, I do, I've been saying this for years, I do think that most people's experience of 8K content is going to happen on a headset rather than on a, a large television. Um, so 8K has been slow in getting here, um, but I think that the immersion that you get with a headset is the best use case for an even higher resolution piece of content. So if we think about you know, going to see Taylor Swift in person as being the high end um, and the lower end of the market getting upgraded from watching on your 4K TV to watching in your headset. <laughs> yeah, I do think that the interesting development, the most exciting thing is actually this middle class of the experience economy that we're seeing start to pop up, which is uh, hybrid. It's technology-enabled live experiences that give you a lot of the social benefit of going to a sports game or a live concert, um, but maybe the actual content itself is still digital. And I think the highlight, that primary example we have there is what's happening in Las Vegas with the Sphere, but there's a whole range of other companies taking stabs at this kind of hybrid entertainment. Everything from ABBA Voyage, which is now going to be sort of commercialized into a touring event uh, with the band Kiss uh, to uh, Cosm, which is a company that we're really interested in that is basically building sphere-like 
uh, in theaters that will live stream sporting events. So um, you can have a great seat for a fraction of the cost and still also get the experience of being in the in the stands with a lot of other fans. So lots of interesting stuff happening there. Yeah. And, you know, I want to go back to that sphere example, because we all had the opportunity to go inside when we were in Vegas for CES. Chelsea, I wanted to get your impressions on being there. Do you think that this is kind of the future of the middle class of experiences? Did it wow you enough to uh, maybe forego that real life show? It definitely wowed me that <laughs> the sphere is absolutely massive and there was a couple key standout things that I actually wasn't aware of going into the space. There's a lot of different like elements to even interact with in the lobby. But then once you get to your seat, not only is it this entire dome of a screen around you, they also have, what was the scent thing called? I don't know, smell-o-vision, some kind of hybrid Wonka-vision future. We're talking about the future smell-o-vision. But basically, it's this fully immersive like experience and part of what I find so fascinating about this whole category of entertainment and Adam like briefly touched on this at the top but when we think about like headsets and a lot of this immersive technology VR specifically up until now like 90% of use cases have been gaming related so zooming out for a second and talking about just this general development of more immersive opportunities in technology and entertainment we're about to see like such more mainstream adoption and even look at the types of, you know, events that they're focusing on and content that they're focusing on the Aronofsky documentary, like nature, like all of this, like wonders of the world that can really entertain and engage so many different types of demographics and you two taking the stage there, ABBA Voyage, like I'm loving that we're seeing so many different investments to bring passions to life across the spectrum. And I think that's going to create a lot more hype and excitement from a, a diverse group of audiences. So yeah, I, I think the Sphere and Cosm do represent a really interesting middle class of experiences that are only going to expand in the future. I can see how brands can want to show up in these spaces as opposed to being part of that you know real-time environment just because of the price point that is affiliated with it. You can maybe reach a smaller audience, but one that is more actively engaged and uh, obviously has a higher share of voice in that kind of environment. So watch out, try to visit the Sphere, go to a Cosm in a city near you, check it out. You definitely uh, won't be disappointed about what the future holds. Now, one last thing that I do want to touch on in this expanding experience economy are the evolution of IRL experiences like Mattel's announcement of a theme park, Netflix thinking about more permanent installations across the globe. And then obviously we've seen announcements from Universal to build a whole new theme park around its IP. And the big, big wow factor of the last week was the Disney and Epic announcement of their ambitions for the future. Do you guys see this kind of immersive experiences as something that is going to take off in the future? Everybody is sort of coalescing around this idea of like these in real life experiences, these offline experiences that are very technology enabled. And I think that all of these things are, are really interesting prototypes for the cities of the future. Just to go back to one of our earlier trends again, we're seeing these sort of entertainment driven experiences that are integrating technology in ways that we haven't seen before. And I think that's going to inform how technology is used in public spaces next decade. Uh, and I think that it's consumers are excited about it. I think that 
Um, we've now finally reached a, a place where the the folks designing these experiences are, you know, take finally take for granted that everybody has a phone. And what can we do that's more exciting that's going to get people to look up from their phones? Uh, even if you're in a very cool environment, sometimes people do get distracted taking photos and capturing media. What can we do to like get them looking up and around uh, and, and enjoying an, a unique experience that is different than what they can get at home online? No, it'd be really creepy, but also cool to recreate the roller coaster photos of yesteryear, but with organic moments around, you know, concerts and theme parks where obviously you're having your picture taken without you knowing it, but it'd be nice to see you enjoying the moment without having to, you know, pull out your selfie stick and capture it yourself. I can tell you that that is something that has been widely discussed for uh, at least almost 10 years now. Uh, <laughs> uh, privacy questions abound. But I do, I do think that that idea of embedded cameras in these environments, at some point, somebody's going to going to ship it, and we'll see how consumers respond. But if you get a great photo out of it, are you going to mind? Probably not. Exactly. I'm down for an Amazon Go model where you kind of walk in, it has a device ID detection, you quickly opt into the experience and boom, now you have that at your disposal. Exactly. It's like, I do think that it's a, it's a downstream effect of the idea that we're all already being surveilled everywhere. Why not get some good selfies out of it? <laughs> Isn't that what we're all living for anyway? Just one good selfie. So obviously getting that selfie for Instagram is all important, but equally important to Gen Zs and Gen Alphas is how they appear virtually. I think that is one stat that we've kind of repeated over and over here at the lab. And I think that Disney and Epic, their recent announcement is reinstigating the um, attention shift towards the metaverse. Um, right now, I think that the middle class of experiences is kind of limited to some of those IRL spaces like Cosm, like Sphere. But I think virtual destinations like this new venture between, you know, those two uh, behemoths, Disney and Epic, are going to bring people to these online destinations to engage in communal experiences, ones that are, you know, unifying of the monoculture, ones that ultimately have experiences that ladder back to the remix city, as well as, you know, what they're doing at their desk. So as we're marching to life's new beat, I think that these are all different trends and downstream effects we have to heed as we look forward to defining the culture of the 2020s. As ever, thank you, Adam and Chelsea, for being here today. And thank you for listening into Floor 9's extended Outlook 2024 episode. If you're interested in reading Adam's Outlook 2024 article, you can find the link in the show notes. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at IPG Lab and on Medium at IPG Media Lab. Until next time, bye-bye.